The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. We're ready for another good one tonight. I think I told you last night that we had a bit of a schedule change for tonight. And it works in our favor when we do this sometimes, because tonight we've got our good friend Scotty Roberts joining us. We're going to talk about the reptilians, among other things. Scotty is a wealth of information, so the topics will be varied and uh, various, and we will uh, spread them throughout the course of the evening. But I know it'll be interesting and it'll be a lot of fun. So looking forward to all that. But anyway, welcome to everybody who's watching on the YouTube channel uh, all around the world, I see. Great to have you along, particularly from Sweden. Hey, Peter, welcome to the program. Nice to see you. Um, we want to make sure that you know where the YouTube channel is. If you're listening in another fashion right now, just go to YouTube and search for JV Johnson. Please subscribe. Our subscriptions are climbing every day. There's no fee or anything for subscribing on YouTube, but it gives you, uh, you know, gives us some support and gives you an opportunity to listen to or watch about, I don't know, 500 back episodes of the program there. A lot of great guests and great interviews on the YouTube channel. Plus, the podcast is the same way. You can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, by going to any of the major podcast distribution platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, they all are available, and uh, Stitcher, Spotify, it's all, it's all there. So you can find Beyond Reality Paranormal, which is the name of the podcast version of the program. All right, let's go to break. Let's uh, come back with our guest. Scotty Roberts is going to join us tonight. We're going to talk about his work studying and writing about the reptilians, plus a lot of other things. There's a whole bunch of topics we'll cover with Scotty tonight. It's beyond reality. Don't go away. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Our good friend, uh, Scotty Roberts. Scotty, welcome to the show. Great to have you back. JB, good to be here. Thanks for asking me. You know, um, one of the things when we get a, a schedule fluctuation, whatever causes that, I almost think the stars align because then I immediately reach out to you and say, hey, Scotty, can you be on tonight? And <laughs> miraculously you're available because i know you do you do so many shows you're constantly doing interviews but it it pulls us out of the fire and it's always always turns out to be a fantastic program so we're excited to have you here tonight well i hope so thank you so let's let's um let's start by uh talking uh, about uh, a couple of things that you've been working on and, and you've kind of um sure. you know you, you you're always you always have your hands in something you're always writing something and uh, one of the is it may even be the first book you've ever you you wrote was it was Tam O'Hare the first one you wrote that that was the very first book I wrote you know and it was uh, uh, actually it's a like a short novel or a novella um, I started it as a picture book for kids and I ended up writing the way I talk too much and uh, <laughs> my my agent at the time he submitted it to five major publishers. And they all came back and said the same thing. Have your author realize this one way or the other, either longer into a chapter book or shorter into a picture book. And uh, so I threw the thing against the wall and shoved it in the bottom of a drawer where it sat for about 10 years before I I touched it again. And um, I originally wrote it. I used to tell my now 28-year-old twin daughters when they were 7 and 8, I used to sit and tell them stories at bedtime. And I'd make up these stories of this legendary, you know, uh, uh, Scottish mouse. And, uh, you know, kind of a William Wallace meets uh, the Mouse Kingdom type of uh, character. 
And uh, one of the side characters was this Irish rabbit, uh, uh, an Irish lord whose name was Tam O'Hare. And uh, he had a squirrel squire, a young squire that was a squirrel named Horatio McNutt. And uh, the girls, one day we sat on the floor in the living room and we were drawing pictures. And uh, I drew a picture of the mouse and so on. And the kids wanted to know what uh, all these characters were like and what does Tam look like? And so the next day, I just had a hanker, and I sat down, because I'm an illustrator, and I did this painting, a full-color painting of Tam O'Hare and his young squirrel squire. And uh, that's what now adorns the cover of the book. And uh, then I wrote it after that, and then I you know, put it away for a few years and came back to it. It was published in 2008 and, um, uh, with Morgan James. And I since bought the rights to that and republished it in color myself because I had all these uh, like like fifteen full color illustrations in this book that all got reproduced in black and white, grayscale black and white. And uh, so I took it and I republished it in color uh, a couple of years ago now. And uh, so that was the very first book I ever wrote, and it was all about this Irish lord looking for uh, who a great reputation. Think swashbuckler, but you know, a, a privateer to the Queen, and an Irish peerage, English peerage, Scottish peerage, and uh, he was this honorable, noble character. And uh, he's looking for a little girl, uh, it's like a cousin of his, that was stolen by the fairy folk, the fae. And uh, so the whole book is all the adventures he goes through, looking for this little girl who's lost. And uh, so... That's what the story became, and uh, so it's, it was a lot of fun to write. There's a lot of, you know, I read back at that story, Jimmy, and I and I see there's stuff in it. I look at it, I read a section, and I'll, I'll cry, and I go, why am I crying? And because I look at that book, and I look at the deep, buried stuff that's in there, uh, the dealings with honor, the dealings with uh, uh, spirituality, and all of this other stuff that's buried in this uh, young reader's book. And so, uh, and it's actually the, the the biggest audience that book got was college age and up. Uh, even though you can read it to kids and kids enjoy it, so that was the very first book. So, and and, and, the, and the, I could talk about Tam forever yeah, because he was the original character I created. Yeah, and I have so many questions about it. Now, obviously, it's not it's not necessarily directly paranormal related as your later career kind of took you down that path but right, uh, right. There, there are overtones of of mystery and intrigue there obviously um and some yeah. of the spiritual and supernatural maybe the mystical world but my curious my i'm curious about what you were doing uh, during your life at that time and i know i know i build this as we're going to be talking about the reptilians and we'll get to that kind of stuff we've got plenty of time sure. but um what was going on in your life at the time were you because i knew you were a graphic artist for a while is that what you were doing when you when you just wrote this yeah, you know, I was a, uh, um, I started out in high school, as a matter of fact, when I was 17 years old, I started out uh, as an artist for a print shop. They saw some of my paintings at the school where I attended, which was a church school, a huge fortress church, you know, 1,500 members, and the art class, they'd hang our paintings in the, the narthex of the church. And uh, somebody saw that and asked me if I would do some dust jacket cover designs for them. Just drawings, which I did when I was a kid, and I went off to college, and then they had formed a moved out of state and formed a huge print shop and mail shop and ad shop 
out in Virginia, and they called me. This is about four years later, and said, "You want to come and be a, one of our artists?" And I came, and I was an art director there. And uh, so then I came back to the Minneapolis area, took a job as an art director, and it just I was in advertising for twenty plus years, and uh, then broke off on my own, and which I've been doing for about fifteen years now. And so, uh, um, yeah, that's what I was doing at the time. I wrote this book. Interesting personal story. Uh, my wife at the time, the, the the mother to my twin daughters, and uh, at the time when they were seven, um, was uh, severely alcoholic. Now you you'd look at her and say she was a beautiful woman, she was cosmopolitan and smart, and all of these things, but she loved to party, drink when we were when we first met, and then when we got married and started having kids, she just didn't give that up, and it became mm-hmm. a big problem. And eventually, uh, it led to divorce. And uh, I was, at the time, I was uh, telling these stories to my kids and sitting on the floor in the living room drawing pictures was a time where she was gone from our our family for six months in treatment. And uh, she came back into the marriage, and uh, it lasted another year, and then divorce. And uh, then I was given sole custody of my children. And by that time... There's a, I don't want to get off-colored here, but there was a, a day I went back out to uh, the pl- our place, which is a horse ranch at the time, and I went and I uh, to pick up stuff, and uh, my ex now ex-wife, she walks into the room without a stitch of clothing on and says, we can do this one more time before we're divorced, right? And, of course, I'm a guy, and I went, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's where, that's where my... My now 19-year-old son came from. Oh, man. <laughs> was the product of that. And oh, so man. he was born into the mess. But the judge gave me custody of all three of my children, sole custody. And so I raised them as a, sing- a sole dad for several years. And, and if you look in the back of the book of Tam O'Hare, by the time it got published in 2008, uh, my daughters were 16. And my son was, I think he would have been uh, roughly, what? eight, seven, uh, I had them all do color pictures or, or drawings of Tam O'Hare. We put them in the back of the book and uh, well, amongst the appendices in the back. And so uh, my kids had a big part of that book, and uh, they grew up with it. They grew up with the character. It's, I always feel like one, uh, during our conversations, by the end of it, I always has, have a piece of information that I'm not sure I'm comfortable having. <laughs> I think we just hit that one tonight. Um, but that, that's an amazing story, though. And I, and I have to say this, because a lot of people, at least in our audience, know you for your, your books about paranormal topics and, and your uh, love of history and those types of things. But you are a very talented graphic artist. And as you know, I, I call on you to do work for me whenever I need something yeah. like that done because you do such great, phenomenal work. And that's well, one of the things, and you do offer that service to the public, too. That's part of uh, what you have on your website. That, that's kind of my bread-and-butter work, is I do uh, illustration. I do. I illustrate a lot of kids' books for authors, uh, publishers. I, uh, I do graphic design, logos, uh, corporate identity, all that kind of stuff, so. Yeah, and you that's, do. That's you, what uh, keeps the boat floating here. You do a great job with it, um, but you know, just getting back to kind of wrapping up this converse, conversation about Tam O'Hare, it seems to me you have a passion for that character, the stories uh, included in it, uh, the universe that you created for it. Uh, you seem to have a connection and, and a passion for that, probably unmatched with your other stuff. Not that, not that it's you know, it's like asking what's your yeah. what, you know who's your favorite child. You know, it's hard to you know, yeah. you know what I'm saying, right? 
Yes. And and Tam certainly is that. I mean, I've got another anthropomorphized book that's like that. Tam is set in uh, 1500s in, in uh, Tudor uh, England, Ireland, and Scotland, They're right in the middle of the conflict between Mary, Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth I of England. And uh, that's right smack in the middle of the story, and he encounters these characters. So I've got, I've tried to, even though all the characters are animals in the book, uh, I've used clothing, ships, uh, geographic locations, weaponry, all of that is all accurate to humans, but I've just used animals to tell the story. And uh, uh, so uh, everybody, you know, uh, uh, in that book, uh, other than Tam, is an actual historical character and that he encounters. He's a bit like a Forrest Gump without the Forrest Gumpishness about it. He's a character that's fictional that meets all these and and rubs shoulders with and is actually peer to a lot of the historical characters in the book. So I uh, tried to keep an accurate historical backdrop to the fanciful tale of the only paranormal in this book would be the fae. You're digging into the Celtic mythology and the lore. And when I talk about the fairy folk, I'm not talking about Tinkerbell. I'm talking about the fae, the, the darker elemental side that would steal children and leave a stick in its place and put a glamour on it to make the parents think the child died in bed at night and the parents would bury it and grieve and be gone and the child would be taken with them to the fairy realms. And uh, so that's the the kind of storyline that this thing follows. Now, I before yeah, yeah, go ahead. Did you want to add something? I was going to say so. Tam is my definitely my favorite. Big place in my heart for Tam O'Hare. The uh, where's that book available? Because I before the show, I was putting up links for your other work, and I got Amazon links. I didn't see Tam there. Is it just available through your website? It it is. It is. It is available at uh, uh, Amazon. And there's a couple of versions. You've got to look for the version with the greener cover on it, kind of a greenish-gray cover. Oh, and by the way, Barry Fitzgerald, uh, who was on Ghost Hunters International, The Irishman, uh, he wrote a long forward for this book. Oh, cool. Uh, the new book that I put out, and so that's on there. But if you go to, uh, you can actually go to tamohare.com. That's T-A-M-O-H-A-R-E.com. Tam O'Hare. Hare, he's a rabbit. So TamOHair.com, and there's a link right there. If you click on the big cover picture, it takes you to the Amazon link. Cool. Let's talk about uh, your book, um, The Secret History of the Reptilians. I really want to explore this topic because I know that you you look at the alien aspect, the, the possibility of uh, you know these reptilian extraterrestrials. You also talk about appearances throughout uh, you know religious texts. In a nutshell, open up the discussion for us about the reptilians. Sure. Well, the book started, I, I, I had written a book about the Nephilim, and my publisher came back to me and said, what's your next book going to be? And I was just elated to hear that line all by itself. And I offered up a bunch of topics, and one of them, they offered me, they said, well, what about the reptilians? you know anything about them? And I said, no, but I can find out about them. I can write about that. And uh, so I started writing the book to explore this whole, it's subtitled, I think the book is It's entitled, uh, not think, I know. It's called The Secret History of the Reptilians. And then the subtitle is The uh, Pervasive Presence of the Serpent Throughout Human History, Religion, and Alien Mythos. And so I took this book and I started writing, and I'm digging into all the reptilian stuff, the uh, Zechariah Sitchin type of stuff, and I'm looking at all these sources. 
And the book eventually morphed over into being less about an alien factor and more about the psychology of why we need these myths in our lives. And so I started exploring that, and I started exploring deeply and heavy in some of these chapters, digging into Enki and Enlil and Elil and the gods and how they the Anunnaki and how they created humans and where the serpentine element comes into that and the Genesis story and other stories. And I dug into Freud and Adler, the two uh, the fathers of psycho, modern psychology, and how they were kind of on opposing views and why we need things like this, whether they're true or whether they're allegory or whether they're, we've created them. Uh, why do we need these legends and these mythologies in our lives? And so I took and I started exploring a lot of that throughout the book. And that's what it became. As you were researching this, first of all, where did where do the initial references show up? Where do we see the first references to anything that would be reptilian in nature? And and we have to kind of separate here uh, religious text from um, maybe secular stuff. Uh, if you can make the maybe it's not possible, sure. but if you can make that distinction, where do we st- first start seeing this? Well, when you go way back in history, for lack of a better way to describe that. Most of your texts that deal with things like this are religious in nature or spiritual in nature. Uh, You've got the story of the Anunnaki, which are said to be the reptilians, although they never call themselves that, nor is it ever meant those writings that that's who they are, but there's a lot of uh, finds, archaeological finds from the the Sumer Akkad area in the Mesopotamian region, the Euphrates and the Tigris River valleys. And you find all kinds of things that have been unearthed that have this reptilian feature about them. And so the theory started there. I know Zechariah Sitchin, who wrote a lot, uh, you know, over the last, uh, uh, in the last uh, dec- uh, the last century. Um, I don't mean that to sound like a hundred years ago. I mean, in the, in the, the two, th- hello, in the 20th century. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, he wrote an awful lot about this stuff, but I think he also created a lot of stuff. And, found some stuff that was very convenient to fit his arguments, and he created something there that has merit to it, but uh, I also think that he was a little faulty in some of his scholarship, uh, which is not to say I know better than Sitchin. I'm just saying uh, he there is one of these things that scholars can do, uh, even outside of the mysterious type of stuff, and it's if they have a pet theory, they will make sure that things fit their theory, and very rarely will they move off of those topics or off of their preconceived ideas about them. So I started looking there, um, and of course the the Anunnaki story is repeated in the Genesis story, just in different words. It's a borrowed tale. And so what I started seeing was there is a prototype religion where all of these things started coming into play. And uh, you, uh, the Bible is probably one of the better places to find this, because you see the serpent in and throughout everything. But then you look at all the other cultures. You look at the chi- ancient Chinese culture uh, with the dragon, the serpent, uh, which was a happy thing. Uh, the Genesis story, the, the, the serpent was an evil thing, a dark thing. But also, at one point, it was Moses used the serpent to heal people, so it was looked to as a good thing. Uh, then, of course, that became the, the basis for the medical caduceus that you see nowadays, the serpent on a pole. And uh, then you see uh, uh, in uh, the Mesoamerican culture with Quetzalcoatl, the winged serpent god, 
uh, E comes into play. Uh, you see it in uh, um, ancient Palestinian or Canaanite religions. You see it in religions all around the world. The serpent starts raising up, and it seems to be a pervasive presence of this creature that is in, in and throughout woven into all the different ancient stories of mankind, which, of course, also are all is synonymous with the spiritual stories of all these cultures. And so it's, uh, that's where you see the beginnings of this. And I think you start looking also at uh, uh, the ancient Anunnaki story, which is what, what Sitchin focused on. And uh, you see a lot of the serpent, serpentine references being applied to that story. And, uh, and so this is where it, it really rose up. It's like the cradle of civilization. The serpent has been always been with us in all these stories. And uh, like I say, it's synonymous with uh, the story of man's history is the story of man's religion. And uh, most documents, you know, you even go up into the times of like Queen Elizabeth I, 1600s, most legal documents had to do with the way the country focused on its religion. And so religion was always synonymous with history. And it's really only until like the founding of this country where we decided we were going to be more secular in our approach to government that a lot of that started to get a bit stripped away. Yeah, governments were changed over religious yeah. concerns. Governments were overthrown to bring one religion to power over another, um, you know, throughout, exactly. especially medieval history. But let's, I want you to take, wear a couple different hats in this conversation. And I'm sure. not sure where your personal belief falls, and you can tell us if you want to, but before you tell us, I want you to argue a couple of different arguments here. And the first one is the idea that uh, there ha- we have no extraterrestrial reptilians to point to. We've got nothing but right. uh, man's imagination over time, even as it was introduced into religious and uh, texts. What is it about reptiles, and particularly serpents, that uh, had man's imagination putting them into so many roles, whether they were evil or whether they, as you pointed out in Chinese culture, were revered? What is it about uh, the serpent and man's imagination? Well, uh, the, what I found when I was studying for the book on the reptilians was that the serpent was something, one of the features of the serpent was that it could shed its skin. It was like it was a, considered to be a resurrecting type of an animal. And, uh, um, and that was one of the features about the serpent. The serpent was also where it got its beginnings, uh, in uh, ancient history, I don't know exactly, other than to again hail back to the Genesis story. Uh, and that's where, of course, you've got a religious story that's wrapped around it. And so when you start digging into where the serpent began, why the draw to the serpent, um, I don't know. But you see it in every culture. I haven't seen anything that said, and this is why we're using the serpent in our culture. And this is why we're using the serpent in our culture. You just saw that it was, a, it was always there. It was always in almost every major culture out there, the reptilian or the serpent factor played in. And um, uh, like I say, from Chinese and across the board. So um, why they chose the serpent, I don't know. I think it's because in that proto-religion, that earliest form of civilization, there was something that happened with a serpent type of being, which stuck in the corporate 
imaginations, the corporate histories, the corporate spiritualities, and they spread into every culture that was there. Now, whether they spread spread from one source or popped up in all these different sources simultaneously, we don't know for sure. All we know is that is that it's pervasive and it's there everywhere. As um, time goes on, and I don't know where we see the introduction of the legend and lore of dragons, but dragons yeah. seem to be the ultimate serpent, and they are considered to be the ultimate uh, force to be reckoned with, particularly throughout the Middle Ages. And and, and, and of course, pop culture as well, things like, um, what was it, Game of Thrones, those types of things. Uh, is that just yeah. an extension of what we're talking about? Yeah, that's an extension. It's, it's uh, fed all the way over into pop culture. Now, the whole idea of the dragon, this was, it was always focused on stories of the dragon being the evil, and men needing to overthrow the evil. You think of just the, the, the very, the one that sticks out, St. George and the Dragon. Um, this is something he had to do. The equivalent of Satan was defeating the serpent. Yet you see now the more modern versions of dragons, starting in the last couple of decades, you see stories and movies and books that are coming out where the dragons were good. And, uh, and it was the men that were evil that were trying to kill the dragons um, because they saw them as evil. And uh, you see it in movies like Dragonheart, which came out, what, 25 years ago. Uh, you see it in books about Dragon Wing. My son reads the series of young readers' books, young adult books, on uh, the dragon culture. And you see all kinds of books like that that are being written. Uh, written. You see it in the, what were the recent ones? The, was it Pixar, Disney Animation, mm-hmm. that did uh, How to Train Your Dragon? And uh, a fabulous little series of, of kids' movies, which is really full of adult and historical references that aren't spelled out in those things. Uh, you got to know what you're kind of talking about. You go, you watch, I watch some of those and go, oh, wait a minute, I know where that came from. And so... Um, We've seen the flipping of that, but we see that in a lot of things in our culture now. You see our culture generally has been moving away from the religious and more to the secular, or the spiritual, if you will, if you aren't going completely secular. And so we've seen that big flipping in our culture, and that's like people chalk it up to, you talk to some people, they'll chalk it up to the new age that humanity is going into, and that's why that's there. So, um, uh uh, and I kind of drifted off from the main question there, but um, what I have seen is that, uh, like the, uh, it's it's like Saint Patrick. I think it's Saint Patrick on Saint Patty's Day. And what was he supposed to have done? Driven all the snakes out of Ireland, right? And of course, uh, we never knew until you start looking into it. It's not even talking about literal snakes. It's talking about Satan and Satan's followers. And that uh, he clamped down. It was all, in a way you could almost say it's like what the Inquisition did much later. Uh, that was closing in on the the pagan culture and on the uh, culture that the literalist Orthodox Church uh, came to believe as being the evil to humanity. And so uh, um, you've got uh, stories like that. And so uh, the the serpent uh, and the dragon and all of these became symbols of evil because somewhere in the pages, especially in Christianity and Judaism, the serpent was labeled as 
that being that was in the Garden of Eden, where the Garden of Eden story never says it was a serpent, uh, never calls him, I'm sorry, never says it was Satan or the darkness. It calls him Nakosh, which was a word for the charmer, the enchanter, the enlightened one. Um, and these are all the terms given to the character in the book of, uh, in the Garden of Eden story. And uh, so what grew out of that, God cursed the serpent. And we all know, even by reading it, you can see it's pure mythology. It reads like mythology, uh, because on your belly you shall go, and that's the curse uh, to the serpent, uh, meaning the serpent originally didn't walk on, on, uh, walked on, on two legs or four legs or whatever. And uh, God uh, struck him down to slither on the ground. And that's the story that's put to the evil. And so evil was attributed uh, to the serpent because of that. And you saw that coming up over and over and over again. And we also see recurring themes of evil serpents or monsters, if you will, among nautical stories. Uh, when, uh, when man first started traveling across oceans, you know, these reports of sea serpents and these sea monsters, which were serpent-like, became, yeah. became you know, quite the, uh, the motivator for, uh, for many people to stay away from the oceans. Yeah, that, that was. There were stories of uh, the sea monsters. There were stories of mermaids. There were stories of uh, things in the sky. I mean, not to side trail this, but you, I think a lot of people may have heard of this by, by now, but over the years we found that even in Christopher Columbus's logbooks, he talks about seeing what we would classify as a UFO in the sky that followed them for days on the horizon as they're crossing the Atlantic. And uh, so all of those kinds of stories raised up, and they were and they were brought into what I would call human mythos. These are things that maybe weren't necessarily false, but um, we don't see them in the same way today anymore. So something has changed, or they were all fake stories, or it's died out, or whatever it might be. You see, the Bible even talks about the le- the Leviathan of the deep. And uh, um, these are creatures that were more serpentine. Or some said, well, they're talking about whales, too, in there, and things like that, the Leviathan. But we were talking about the reptilians, and I want you now to take the hat off that uh, I had asked you to put on, and I want you to put a different one on, hat on. And this is the hat that, that uh, speculates about the fact, or not the fact, but the idea that the ET or the alien, uh, the reptilian references throughout early history are related to an ET presence of an alien race. Go with that idea for a minute. Um, you know, I I think that that's a possibility. I can't cancel that out. Uh, there was a point where I believed that through and through, and uh, I changed my my approach a little bit and my beliefs. But um, I would say that there is a possibility that that exists. When you start looking at the way uh, uh, the, when it was starting, I was talking about the Merovingians, but even before that, when it started spreading westward from really the source point uh, up in uh, the, the upper uh, Lebanon region and places like that and across again into the Euphrates River Valley and spreading westward, it was supposed to be these people that were the people of the Anunnaki, 
that spread west, and they carried with them this whole reptilian culture or subculture. And this is supposed to be what ended up being, you know, the kings eventually, even in Wales, you know, and and England, that uh, all the royal families across Europe were reptilian in nature. And uh, this is where that mythology built up. Now, we know that fact is sometimes stranger than fiction. Uh, We talk about, if you'd have talked about the Illuminati a few years ago, you'd get laughed at. Now people are like, yeah, there's a hidden hand somewhere at play in this world. There's, you know, there's a group of people that probably run everything. And, uh, you know, we look at them as the George Soros types, you know, the multi-billion to trillionaires, you know, that have so much money, they basically run everything from behind the scenes. Now, is that the Illuminati? I don't know. But uh, this is where the ideas of that were also formed, is that there is a ruling class that is like beneath the surface. And it morphed into this thing that, that says that there was a reptilian race that was subdued uh, by a good reptilian race, uh, all aliens and then uh, uh, domestic to this planet, and that those races are still warring with each other for dominion over the planet. And now you can pull out all kinds of quote-unquote evidences uh, that there's no way to prove but there's all kinds of little tidbits of speculative uh, information um, and things where you have to, you know, fit square pegs into round holes. But uh, um, there's all this information out there that seems to say there might be something like that taking place on this planet. However, proving that is the problem. Um, but of course, and you'll have the next guy come up and say, you can't prove the existence of God, but I know he's there and lives in my heart kind of thing. And that's really what you're dealing with. You're dealing with faith issues and something that very well could be very real to people. We continue to hear stories about, or not necessarily, yeah, I guess stories, but also, uh, researchers that, that, uh, purport having evidence to support the idea that yeah. we have not only a history of reptilian alien races visiting Earth and in some cases interacting with early humans or helping to create genetically early humans, mm-hmm. uh, but we also uh, hear about them uh, existing as some type of shapeshifters in our culture today. Can you trace yeah. a line from from the, the early days of this this idea to what, some people suggest that many of the world's most powerful people are actually these reptilian uh, extraterrestrials. Um, boy, you know, finding a source point for that is really tough. There's guys like uh, there was a professor at the Syracuse University um, who kind of posited the idea of a whole reptilian conspiracy that originated actually in the fictions of some fictional authors like Conan the Barbarian by Robert E. Howard, uh, Serpent Men, The Shadow Kingdom, Weird Tales. These were all things that drew on theosophical ideas of lost worlds, of Atlantis, Lemuria, Helen Blavatsky. Uh, she, uh, remember Helen Blavatsky with the uh, Theosophist. And Theosophism, by the way, and I took this in my book, when I, when I looked at the Merovingian kings and how they led to some of the basis for Blavatsky's 
uh, whole theories that built into theosophism, which became the Thule Society, which was the basis for Nazism. And uh, although that's not what they, they didn't believe, I think, in wiping out races or anything like that, but they believed in an Aryan race, this angelic race that was a pure, clean race, not in the sense of racism. They weren't out to uh, destroy Jews or any particular race in theosophism, but that's what it evolved into. And all of this came out of the whole uh, uh, serpent men as humanoids with bodies and snake heads and all of this that were in. A lot of this began with fiction um, into what we see in the modern day today. You look at things like even... Uh, uh, what, what is it uh, I'm thinking of here? With uh, uh, the Theosophists, there was uh, uh, an author in the uh, late 1800s, 1870s, uh, Bulwer-Lytton. I can't remember his first name. Uh, Bulwer-Lytton, one of those hyphenated last names. And he wrote what's contended to be the first science fiction novel in like 1877. And it was Vril, V-R-I-L-L. And uh, they renamed it uh, some other title after that. But it was about that typical type of story that you've seen played over again in the movies and books of an explorer who is lost in the Arctic. And he goes underground and finds this civilization that's filled with these angelic type of beings. And they had this power source, Vril, that ran their entire society and gave them these magical, mystical powers. Well, interestingly enough, and that was written in 1877, Adolf Hitler sent out expeditions looking for Vril, looking, because he didn't believe that Bulwer-Lytton was writing fiction. And uh, so, and there were many around him who believed the same thing. And I bring all this stuff up to say that there are fictions that men and women have created that other people have picked up and said, no, 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 no. There's something hidden beneath the surface of that. That is truth. And uh, um, this is like talking about David Icke, uh, who talks about reptilians, uh, the Emerald Tablets, uh, Children of the Matrix, all of these kinds of things. Um and uh, uh, Atlantis itself. Um, so, and I went through a whole series on my own show last month about Atlantis and uh, the real Atlantis. What was Atlantis? Plato gave us something that is stuck with uh, the consciousness of mankind since he wrote about it. Uh, and so there's all these different things that are out there that I think are the basis for modern... Um, and I think this may have drifted off your question a bit, but for, for the modern belief that there is something more that is pushing this on humanity, uh, you start looking at, uh, you can go on the Internet right now, start looking up videos and stills of all our world leaders that are reptilians. And you can see it because the light in a, this camera shot, you can see right. that they've got the vertical irises and their eyes are slit and they blink sideways and all of this with the inner, they're, they're reptilians in human skin, uh, suits, sex. And uh, um, there are people that believe that that is actually true. Now, I will put this caveat in there is that not everything is secular. Not everything is... Um, as we think it is. And not everything can be explained by science, as you and I know so well. There are veils that science cannot pierce. To say that these types of things exist, 
I would be very arrogant to say they don't. Uh, but like we do, say, when we paranormal investigate, we look for, you could call it debunking, you could look for explanations. You want to find out to say, okay, this fantastical thing just happened. What could have caused that? Was it the wind? Was it a this? Was it a that? And we look for the answers, and you rule out all of the things to either debunk it or say it stands on its own merit. And I think that's really what happens with all this other stuff, too, is the stories are there. And you we can't say they don't exist with a certainty, uh, although, you know, somebody who is a skeptic, a scientific skeptic might disagree with that. Uh, they'll just deny it outright. But we know more than anybody else, if especially if you've had experience with the ghostly realms and the paranormal realms, that there are things that exist that don't fit into the pure secular ism of our age. And so there might be something to that. But proving it is the thing. You can believe in something, but then it becomes belief. And belief is something that operates on faith. Uh, when I say, do I believe there are reptilians? Um, that's a good way to put it, because I think all you can do is believe that there are, because it's a faith issue. Ask me if we can prove there are reptilians, and I'd say, no, we can't. We can believe there are, but uh, trying to prove that is the is the, uh, the 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 monumental task. So, if we wrap up this conversation about reptilians, where do you fall? Is 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 it all myth and legend? Is it significantly spiritual when it comes to the references in religious texts, or is it alien in nature, or is it all of the above? Um, I think it's. Uh, I, I hate to to be this way. I think it's all of the above. I um, if I were to step out on a limb, I was asked on there's a show, a Mysterious Universe, out of Australia, a few years, several years ago now, uh, seven eight years ago. They asked me, so Scotty, they said, <laughs> uh, where do you stand on the reptilians? Uh, do you think they really existed? And uh, I said, you know. I said, ah. and, and it was pushing me to answer that question in a friendly way. And I said, I don't really know. Uh, but I will tell you this. Um, there's a part of me that wants to believe this is so, but only from the mysterious standpoint. Because if they really did exist, I think that that is more problematic than them not existing at all. And, uh, you know, it's like uh, uh, wishing there were aliens. Well, you may have to be careful what you wish for, because what if those aliens want to conquer you? What if they want to eat you? <laughs> you know, um, and, and that type of a thing. And uh, um, I will say this. At the beginning of my book, I start off in the introduction talking about a letter I got from a woman, an email, that was telling me about her reptilian experience and that, you know, every so-and-so on some night of the week, uh, a reptilian would appear to her, and he would come to her home. And she said, she described to me, and this skin had kind of a cardboardy, cinnamony smell to it, and kind of this brownish, gray, scaly flesh. 
And, uh, you know, he had the eyes of the reptilians and so on. And he would tell her all kinds of things about why they are here, that they are here to protect us from the other reptilian race that's trying to conquer us and so on. And she sounded really good up until she started talking about. And then we had the most wonderful, glorious sexual experiences. (laughs) And every time this reptilian would come to her house to have sex with her and tell her other stories. And uh, so, you know, I put that in there and in the book. And I said, so is this a true story? Is uh, is this a reptilian character that has a huge libido and he's making up tales so he can get the sex from a human woman every night? Or is this something that's true? Is she imagining things? Because she sounded rational until that point. So um, there's the big question. Does it exist? I don't know. Uh, what I think it would be intriguing if it did. Uh, But you know what that does? Do you know why we humans want to eschew stories like that? Because they go against what we believe spiritually or religiously actually happened. If there's a reptilian race that runs this world, um, it might mean that if you were a, a literalist Orthodox Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, whatever it might be, that that can't possibly exist because it would negate what you say you believe unless you adapt them into what you believe religiously. And the, the reptilians suddenly become the demonic, the satanic. That's the evil influence that is on this earth and so on that God is fighting against. And so there's always a war in heaven. There's always something going on behind the scenes with humans. And yet, we still go to work, uh, you know, when there's no virus uh, quarantine, and we come home, we mow our grass, and we watch our favorite TV shows, and we go on vacation, and we play baseball and all of that stuff, and still aren't having too many problems with reptilians. So there's the question. Does it exist? And it's waiting. It's waiting to take over for the right time. Uh, or does it not exist at all? And we need these mythologies to bolster our faith stories, or to give us something to believe in. And so there's the two things that, and I'm not picking a side here. I'm no, just saying. That's kind of, I was actually just going to say, I never really considered <laughs> you a viable political candidate until I just heard you cover, take all sides of the argument in that answer. So <laughs> I believe in a chicken in every stew pot, and uh, nobody's going to have to pay for it, except those who need to pay for it. You know, there you go. There's my political stance on that. Um, so. You know, we're, we're going to change topics a little bit here. I want to, uh, okay. I'm hoping I'm remembering this correctly. Did I see you post something on social media very recently? about a an ancestor of yours being shot yes. yes that was a pretty interesting story tell that story sure you know uh, i grew up in a broken family i i never knew my father until i was 30 years old and uh so my background was always very enigmatic to me my mom was a young woman who had three kids i was the middle kid and uh, she was, we survived, I think. We didn't know we were poor. I think we survived because our grandfather kept us alive, uh, helped my mom make it. And uh, um, so we grew up, and I didn't know my dad. I always wanted to know who my dad was. And I met him one day when I was 16, and that was it. And then I didn't see him again until I was 30. Wow. And so I, uh, I got to know him. And we're still pretty good friends now. He's 80 now. I'm going to be 60 this year. And uh, so he's 21 years older than I am. And um, 
so I'm I got to know him really well about twenty well thirty years ago almost. It was when my I was going to have my own twin daughters and I wanted to know him, and uh, so. I started asking him about my family, and he didn't have any information. I don't know nothing, Scotty. And uh, so I'd ask some of the relatives on that end, uh, and who I'd never met many of them either. And uh, nobody seemed to know. Somebody had stories. of So I started doing my own genealogical research. And uh, all I had to do was, you know, just uh, write in and get birth certificates and death certificates. And I'd find names on those birth certificates and death certificates, and I'd keep digging and looking. And uh, I actually traced my family tree paternal side all the way back to the 1540s in Wales. And so I, I went all the way back all those generations. But then I found there's two stories that stuck out. I knew who my dad was, but I didn't know my grandfather and I didn't know my great grandfather. And so I looked into those stories and those are the two pictures I posted. Uh, my, my grandfather, my dad's dad, died when my dad was six weeks old mm. and uh, he had tuberculosis. He was 21 years old and he died in a sanatorium in Lexington, Kentucky. I uh, haven't been able to track down which one yet, but that was 1938. He died at 21 years old. Wow. I've already lived to be almost three times the age of my grandfather. But the interesting man was my great grandfather, uh, who also died at an early age at age 30. In 1926, he was murdered, and uh, um, it's like the stuff of a of a a story. And I'm I'm thinking of writing a story about this, but uh, um, he was uh, uh, would gather with his friends uh, at the local five and dime, which also served as the post office, and they'd drink soda pops there. They were young men; uh, they weren't drinking alcohol. But one day. November 2nd of 1926, it was election day. It was midterm elections during the Coolidge administration. <coughs> Excuse me, the House of Representatives elections. And uh, um, they were all gathered there, a bunch of friends. They were drinking soda pops, sitting on the countertop at the post office. Think of, of, of a smaller version of Mayberry, and you get the idea of the town. This was in Boyle County, Kentucky. And a little tiny dot of a town. Well, my great-grandfather was well-known in town. Uh, he was, everybody seemed to like him. He was one of those characters. Um, I know in an old picture I have, I found of him, uh, he dressed very well, suit and tie. And he had a nice uh, fedora that he would wear and great shoes, which uh, was very telling about how a man dresses. You look at his shoes. And, uh, and so he looked great in this picture. And a young, uh, strapping, tall, uh, lean man. And uh, so he, this particular day, November 2nd, as the story goes, he got into a debate with one of uh, somebody that was a friend of his, but a guy that was 10 years younger, 20-year-old guy named uh, Aubrey Edwards. And uh, Edwards uh, got incensed, and it was the postmaster who had him, who told him he had to leave. Yeah, you're getting too heated, Edwards. You know, or Aubrey, you got to get out, send him away. And and Aubrey came back and started the argument with uh, my great grandfather, Stephen Roberts. Again, Stephen Foster Roberts was his name. And uh, and eventually he had, the you know, the uh, one of the other guys escort him out. 
Well, he went down the street by the witness testimony and was uh, asking, like, the butcher for a butcher knife so he could go kill that bastard Republican Roberts. And uh, that's the first, by the way, when I saw those stories, even this last week, I didn't know that element of it. My grandfather was a Republican, and the other guy didn't like his views. And uh, so uh, uh, the butcher, of course, didn't give him a knife. And so he went home and he got a shotgun, a 16 gauge, and he came back to the post office. And there he confronted my grandfather and uh, great grandfather. And some of the other guys were still there. They were all talking. And he says typical uh, lines. He looks at my great grandfather with a shotgun. He goes, what you looking at me? This is by witness testimony. And my great grandfather said, you're the one looking at me. And he jumped down off the counter and uh, Aubrey Edwards shot him uh, just below the heart uh, to the right of his chin, of, of his heart and below. And uh, it said that the, he was so close that uh, it set my great grandfather's clothes on fire and they had to put him out. And then Aubrey Edwards went up and down the street with a shotgun over his head saying, I just killed Roberts, that bastard Republican. You better go get him. Go fetch him. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so the guys threw him all in the back of a pickup truck, drove him to a hospital, and he about three year, three hours later he died of his wounds. And uh, they just didn't have the medical tech back then, especially in a small town, Kentucky. And so, uh, so he passed away. But uh, the interesting story there, and then there was the trial. There was uh, 60 witnesses were called uh, that were up and down that street that day and saw Aubrey Edwards. And they all and they got all these witnesses. And apparently in one day they had them all. uh, It was probably like, did you hear Aubrey Edwards say that he was going to kill that bastard Republican Roberts? Yes, I heard him say that. All right. Thank you. You may step down. And, you know, this is kind of I think the way it went. And the jury deliberated for three and a half hours and came back and gave him a 21 year sentence. Uh, They were. Almost a hung jury because some of them wanted death. Then they took another vote and only a couple wanted death. And then uh, they all came back and said, let's give him 21 years. And as far as I know, all we know about Edwards, the, the, the guy who killed him, was he was drafted into the Army in 1940. So pending war, I don't know if he was out of prison at that time or was let out if he joined the military because there were the storms of war were gathering. Um and uh, um, he died, I think, in 1990. Aubrey Edwards died. Oh, wow. Uh, and so he was alive for, for quite a while. And uh, so that is the story of my grandfather, my great-grandfather. Um, and and it's, it's interesting where I, I kind of hinted at this already, to know that I've already lived three times the life my grandfather ever lived, dying at 21 years old. My grandmother used to bring my dad as a six-week-old infant and stand on the grassy yard and look up to the window at the sanatorium, the the tuberculosis sanatorium, and uh, show the baby to my grandfather. And he died in that facility. And uh, I think they said it was Frankfort, Kentucky, not Lexington. And uh, and then, of course, there's my great-grandfather who died at age 30. I've lived twice the length of life he did. Wow. And uh, But just interesting stories of these people and interesting histories. 
Those, so. yeah, those are all awfully inspiring and comforting, even though it's a bit of a tragic story. Yes. But when you start to connect with your roots in that fashion, it it gives you a, a sense of uh, character, or maybe even uh, defines you in a way that you weren't defined before. Yes, and it really it's really interesting to 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 come across those types of stories. That that's the thing about that story. I got to tell you, very honestly, Jim, just this last week. As uh, when I posted that story, there were some details I did not know. I knew there was a trial and I knew what had happened, but there was a woman, I don't even know her. She's on my friends list on my Facebook. She, because of her job, I, I gathered, has access to this system where she can go in and look up this stuff. And she started posting these newspaper stories about the murder, about the shooting, before they even knew he died, uh, all the way through the trial. And then she went in and she had those transcribed, and she sent them people for nothing, just as a, 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 a an anonymous friend. Oh, wow. Facebook. And I learned some of the facts and the details uh, about this. Now, one, I don't care about the, 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 the politics of it, but I didn't know he was a Republican. I heard that they were, that it took place on Election Day, which made me think, yeah, I'll bet these guys were all sitting and talking politics, and this Edwards guy got pissed at my grand great grandfather. Well, then I find out he hated his views because he was a bastard, dirty Republican. And uh, uh, my, you know, my great grandfather, for as well dressed as he was, he was called in the newspaper articles they called him a garage man. Now I don't know exactly what that was. I don't think it meant he was a mechanic. Uh, there was something about he he would do something with transporting cars and things like that. Uh, so I don't know what financial status he had. All I know is he dressed sharp, uh, at least in those pictures. Uh, if he was a mechanic, then, uh, you know, he dressed in something else for that. So I learned little salient details and features uh, of uh, who this person was. And what I was going to start to say was this week, I got to tell you, Jim, there was a point where I think empathetically I, I made some connection with him because there was one point where it made me well up with tears a little bit. And I'm thinking, wow, I never knew this guy. And I have so invested myself emotionally into his story now that it it, it brought up emotion and dredged up tears about him. And he died, what, uh, 34 years before I was born. And so, um, you know, it's interesting stuff. Like you say, when you can find those connections and make them, they augment parts of your story that you didn't know existed. And then you say, how much of what I am is genetic? Not because I necessarily learned it from these guys, but it's genetic. There's a genetic story that carries along. There's genetic memory, and which all by itself is a very interesting topic. Yeah, it is a really interesting topic. And you just did a wonderful commercial for Ancestry.com. In fact, I thought it <laughs> yes. was... I was watching one. Um, uh, we, we're going to run out of time before we run out of topics, as we always do, Scotty. I want to talk about uh, this this UFO discussion that's uh, been in the media recently. You know, we know that uh, some Navy pilots took some videos of objects right. in the sky that they couldn't identify that were moving what they said uh, in ways that they shouldn't be moving at speeds they shouldn't be able to travel at. And uh, that was done... Um, many years ago those videos were taken yeah. uh, many years ago but recently they've come back into the news because some of the pilots actually were discussing these experiences the u.s military has a new policy of how they treat these things and the uh military has just 
basically substantiated the fact that these videos are real. They're not calling them extraterrestrial yes. or alien in nature, but they're saying that they're actual videos that were taken as in the circumstances that were being described, and they aren't yes. doctored in any way. Talk, talk about what's going on in this discussion. Uh, there, there is a paradigm shift in all of this now because now, you know, they're no longer UFOs. Now they're calling them UAPs, which is uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon. And, uh, you know, there's a fine line there. That's like you're putting a, a lipstick on a pig. You know, it's still a pig. Uh, but um, the interesting thing is all this denial. It's interesting. We just had last night, uh, my friend Rocky and I, who do uh, a radio show, we had Peter Robbins on with us last night. And uh, we were talking about he's he's the man that wrote the book uh, East at Left, uh, Left at East Gate uh, about the Rendlesham incident. Uh, years ago, and he does a lot of lecturing in ufology, and uh, very learned, educated man, and, and knows his stuff. And uh, we were talking about this very thing last night, and uh, he was talking about how this this whole shift, and we were we we were mentioning the possibility that there is misinformation and disinformation out there. That uh, for some reason, uh, it seems that. Somebody is behind. It's almost like saying the reptilian overlords we have behind the scenes. But somebody is behind the dissemination of misinformation and disinformation um, and uh, or making it look so silly that nobody can believe it. you scoff at it. Uh, there are lots of experts that have been out there over the decades that know things, but they refuse to come forward for fear of being laughed out of their professions or their reputations. and uh, But now that tide has shifted a little bit when all of, all of a sudden you have the government coming out and releasing these UAPs and announcing that they have, uh, they've actually renamed the UFO phenomenon to UAPs. Why would they rename something that's to be scoffed at, something that's funny, something that's stupid to believe in? You start seeing things like we talked about this last night. You remember the famous uh, slip, quote unquote, of Ronald Reagan's during a speech of his in 1987 to the United Nations. He was talking about uh, threats from this world and also alien threats that could possibly come and hurt us. Now, this was well known. It's been talked about for, for three decades now. But you, they've found uh, uh, archived in his library is his uh, manuscript from that day that he read from. And in his own handwriting, and the people said, oh, he went off script. Well, the, it was in the script, and in his own handwriting, he said, he said something like, talk about aliens. And right in his own manuscript for that speech, you had Jimmy Carter who saw UFOs. You had uh, Bill Clinton uh, who um, wanted to reveal, he said, oh, as soon as I get in office, I'm going to let you know what's there. And, you know, and, and you know, um, I saw him in a Jimmy Kimmel interview a few years ago, and others may have seen this, where uh, somebody came in and uh, um, did a, a body language reading of, of uh, Bill Clinton's interview on Jimmy Kimmel. And he went through the beginning of the interview, all these topics and how relaxed he was. And this means that and that finger means that and elbow and twitch and whatever. And then Kimmel said, I've got to ask you about the UFOs. He says, what do you know? Tell us. 
What can you tell us? And immediately the body language changed to show that he was very uncomfortable with the topic, uh, even though he had a smile on his face and kind of chuckled here and there. Uh, there were things he did with his body. you got to look it up. You'll find it on uh, uh, on uh, YouTube, the body language, Bill Clinton, UFO, Jimmy Kimmel. And uh, um, there were things he did that showed he was not necessarily lying, as in bald-faced lied, lie, but not telling the whole truth, covering up, not saying things, feeling very uncomfortable about having to deal with the topic at all and wanting to get off it as soon as possible. And uh, yet his voice didn't change much. He was like, oh, well, Jimmy, you know, the UFO things, you know, those little green men or whatever he was saying. He was kind of joking about it. But his whole body language shifted to say he's hiding something. There's something he can't talk about. There's something he wants to talk about and can't or, or whatever. And uh, you have that. And then you got all the way up to Obama in his administration came right out and said, there are no such things as UFOs. They do not exist. That's the government's official stance. And uh, then you got uh, you come now up into uh, uh, Donald Trump. What did Donald Trump say? He was asked about this not long ago. He says, well, he says, you know, he says, um, uh, he says, I personally don't believe they exist. But, you know, he, you know, he says, that doesn't mean they don't. And, you know, this is his stance with it. Uh, if it's there, he says, uh, I'll find it and see if I can say anything about it. And blah, blah, blah. So a, a Ever since, you know, the, the people who knew the most, the presidents, if you will, you had Truman during the 1947 Roswell incident. You had Eisenhower before him uh, and after him also. You had, uh, um, uh, who was the next president? JFK, who they believe he wanted to reveal some of this information. And, of course, he had all these other things going on behind the scenes. And uh, so what do our presidents know? What does our government know that we don't know? That's the big question. But now they're starting to get more comfortable with giving us that information. I remember about 25 years ago, it doesn't seem that long ago, but it was on the 50th anniversary of Roswell. So it would have been 1997. And... The Air Force came out with a spokesman from the air. I was watching this live on TV and talking about debunking all these things about Roswell. And then he mentioned how the question came up about, well, what about the bodies they found? Weren't there alien bodies? And the spokesman for the Air Force actually said, he says, well, there's an explanation for those bodies. It was the test dummies that we would use for altitude and testing parachutes and altitude and all of this and dropping from the sky and so on. That was his explanation. The only problem was in 1947, that was seven more years before they started using <laughs> test dummies. Uh, and so you've got all this stuff going on where it's like openly you can look at them and go, he's not telling the truth. Why is he doing that? Um, and so there's all this information, disinformation, misinformation that's been going on. And uh, then you've got guys like the total other end of the spectrum, like Whitley Strieber, who would be a fantastic guest if you could ever get him on. Uh, he wrote the book Communion uh, back in the 80s, and or maybe the 90s he wrote it. 
but he wrote, he was a novelist. He had some mo- books turned into movies like The Wolfen and things like that. He was a thriller and a horror novelist. And uh, he wrote this book, Communion, about his experiences being abducted. And he's written, his whole career shifted from that point on. He's written several books about that, and he become very new agey and very spiritist and very alien oriented. And you, um, you read his book. It's a creepy as hell book. And uh, it's the one that's got that very famous painting of the face with the glossy oval black eyes. And so, and that's where that originated was on that cover, that particular painting. And, uh, so you look up the book communion, uh, and he talked about those experiences very openly and that there are there are people um i i was doing some paranormal radio believe it or not as early as 1999 and 2000 and uh we had a friend uh who uh we knew that got me in touch with Stanton Friedman Dr. Stanton Friedman the late Stanton Friedman uh, who wrote uh the quintessential books on uh, the Roswell incident and a big ufologist and he just passed away a few years ago but uh um, I talked to him about an incident with a somebody that I knew who met somebody in New Mexico who said that there was a whole underground complex in New Mexico of alien races and that there were over 180 alien races already here on this planet. And that it was like, think of the movie Men in Black with the underground facility and all the aliens. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Hey, good. You know, and you know they pass <laughs> each other. And he said, that is a comic version of what really exists. And he says, do you know why that movie was made? This guy would insist is that it's disinformation. It's to make it seem ridiculous in the eyes of the public. But now Stanton Friedman said he, he knew that there was a facility like this and he interviewed this guy that, that I knew. And he said, he got back to me and he said, you know what? He says, um, that guy knows more than he should know, uh, which is just a very telling statement all by itself. And so is there near near uh, um, uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, is there an underground facility that houses hundreds uh, or dozens of species of aliens? Well, according to this guy, there is. And uh, uh, according to the experiences my friend had with him, uh, things happened that were very out of the ordinary. And this friend of mine totally got out of ufology because after that, she was getting what she believed were visitations from men in black. Mm-hmm. And it frightened the crap out of her. And she was threatened and frightened the crap. And she stepped out of ufology back in, I think this was like the early 2000s. She was done. She stepped away and she's never talked about it again. And she used to run an organization examining all this stuff. And now she doesn't. She's gone out of it and uh, won't even talk about that experience anymore. So all that to say, these new videos that are coming out, what are those? Is this the release of information? Is there like a, we're going to start giving a slow drip to the general public? You look at the way people have responded to the COVID-19 virus and tell me that people won't panic and mass um, and I think that is one of the fears. People are, why would they withhold aliens? Aliens, well, it'd be great to find that out. No, I think you would find uh, a lot of what you're seeing now with the virus. Imagine that if we were, it was revealed to us that we're not alone. 
and that we're being visited, and that perhaps everything you've ever believed about human history, religion, spirituality, uh, has just been changed overnight. Um, uh, what if you found out that all the warring that we do on this planet and all the political discord suddenly doesn't matter to uh, amount to a hill of beans, to quote Humphrey Bogart from Casablanca. Uh, the problems of this earth don't account to a hill of beans in the universe when you find out you're the new kid on the block and there's a lot of more powerful people out there than you. What would that do? Imagine, Jim, what would that do to human society if we knew, and, and this is going to sound really fanciful, but this is a great way to illustrate it. What if you suddenly found out there was a, quote-unquote, federation of other worlds out there that have been watching us for a long time because we're the new kids on the block, and now they've revealed them, and there's contact, and all of a sudden we find out we ain't the only game in town. What do you think that would do to human civilization um, and the way we govern, the way we war, the way we do politics? Now, I'm not suggesting that something like that exists, but what if it did? There's the big question. There are some people that put forward very strong opponents of there being a galactic federation that exists out there. And I don't know if it does or doesn't. I tend to say, eh, it's very interesting, but, you know, prove it to me. Um, and there are some people apparently have the proof. And uh, not me, though. So what do you do with that information? It's uh, it's it's akin to having your legs knocked out from underneath you. As far as civil yeah. civilization would completely be, uh, its 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 foundation would be ripped out from underneath it. Uh, and I don't know what the reaction is. The reaction chaos is the reaction a united front against or preparing for this. Uh, you know who knows? I mean, you would have thought you know when nine eleven occurred here in the United States and, and Americans came together and united when the coronavirus hit Americans became more divided than ever. Uh, the political discord now is, is louder and more uh, insulting and maybe in many ways more damaging than it's ever been. And this is during a national crisis. So I don't, I don't, you know, yep. people are, are fickle and I don't even pretend to know how people react to that, but it certainly would change things. It, it certainly would, and and you've got to think in the sense of try to pull it out of a science fiction category and place it in a real category. Like what did the Native Americans, what did they, the Mesoamericans, what did they all think of the conquistadors when yeah. they came? Yeah. Uh, did they think there were even people out there that were anything like that, that arrived in great vessels, you know, with white cloudy things above them, the sails, and they wore silvery armor, you know, metal and swords. And, you know, what did they think of these beings when they showed up? It changed the entire paradigm of their civilization. So, yeah, it certainly did. By the way, uh, we're almost out of time here. And I didn't want to interrupt you when, when you were giving that answer. Sure. But there were several <laughs> things I wanted to interject um, and I'll, I'll just do them here, although they're really out of context now because <laughs> the moment sure, has passed. Sure. But when you said, when you clarified, you said, uh, Ronald, remember Ronald Reagan's slip. And then yes. you, then you explained that, you know, he, he, he was, uh, he said something that may have been a slip of the tongue. I said, yeah, that's, I was going to say, yeah, that's completely, that has a different meaning than if you had said J. Edgar Hoover's slip. 
That would have been something very different. All right, that was one joke. The other one is, by the way, um, I just want to rate your impressions. Out of a scale of 1 to 10, Clinton was a 6. Obama was only a 2. You really need to brush up on the Obama impression, Scotty. Yes, I do. When he was president, I had it down. Now I've forgotten. But Clinton was still a 6, and he's been out of office for a very long time. So I don't even think Clinton sounds like Clinton anymore. No, no, he doesn't. He doesn't even look like Clinton. No, no, he really, he really doesn't. Anyway, uh, one more question. This is just a fun one. I wanted to ask you: When they make the movie about Scotty Roberts, who do you want to play you? Oh, Errol Flynn. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be a Uh, trick. Yeah, that would be a trick, wouldn't it? Be like weekend at Bernie's all through the film. Um, Boy, who would I have play me? Uh, um, um, uh, 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 Brad. Oh, what the hell is his name? He was in American Shooter. He was in uh, A Star is Born. Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper. You want Bradley Cooper to play play Scott Allen Roberts. Uh, my younger days. And and I think we got we have to have probably the entire population of the county that you live in playing your children because you have oh, so many. <laughs> Just about. Just about. Anyway, Scotty, well, hopefully we'll see you uh, Friday night. I know you've been busy, tied up the last few Friday nights when we've done our Booze, Brews, and Bros program, but um, you know we, we've got a spot there on the screen for you whenever you're ready to jump in I with us. I've so. been tickling about tonight because uh, uh, earlier in the day, because I thought, oh, i got to text Jim and tell him I'm, I'm actually going to make a concerted effort to be there. <laughs> you know, two weeks ago, I forgot. I just totally forgot that we were doing a show, and then... Uh, then something else came up last week, and, right. and so it's been like three weeks since I've been on there. Well, so. we've been having a lot of fun with it. So when you when you uh, join us this week, if you can, um, you're gonna you're gonna be laughing quite a bit, I think, because we've we've added some pretty there. cool stuff. Yeah. All right, man. Hey, listen. Thanks for being with us tonight, Scotty. It's always a great time and always very informative, and appreciate you joining us. Uh, JV, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.